You ever, you ever been in a situation where you just know what the outcome is going to be? I mean, there's not a shadow of a doubt in your mind that the outcome that you want to have happen, to take place, like that is going to, that's going to happen. And there, there's no possible way that anything else could, could happen. This happened to me a few weeks ago, and I still haven't gotten over it, uh, which is why I'm going to share it with you now. Uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I was coaching my son's 8, 9, and 10-year-old basketball team, and we had a pretty good season. We only lost one game, so had a pretty good coach. And I, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. No, the kids, t- kids did great. We had a, we had a great team, and, uh, and, and it was really fun. We had an end-of-season tournament. And so we're playing, and, um, you know, we play our first game, and it goes great. I mean, we win pretty handily outright. We only have an hour for, for our next game, and I know this is going to be tough for our kids because the, they're exhausted. They only have an hour to recover. The other teams had several hours since their last, last game, and so we go in, and we're going to play them. We've beaten them before, and we've got a pretty good game plan, so we feel like we're, we're in good shape. And we didn't go into it cocky, like they were just going to roll over and give it to us, but we went into the game pr- fairly confident that if we followed our game plan, then everything would come out the way it's supposed to. So we're playing the game, and we get to the end, and we get a couple calls that don't quite go our way, and we end up tied at the end of the game. And it's not like this has been a riveting you know, really exciting game. I mean, the score is like 14 to 14 or something like that. And so, so we're going to overtime. Now, in this league, the overtime rule, at least for the first overtime, is that you get two minutes. And then any overtime after that, you get one minute. And the reason that I know that is because we had eight overtimes for this game. Yeah, exactly. It, was, it, it felt like that, too. And so we're, we're, playing, we're playing our best, and so we, at this point, we've got, we've got the crowd behind us as we go through each overtime, overtime, because what was happening is, if we got the tip off, we would run a play, and we would try to get a good shot off. We were playing real basketball. The other team, if they got the tip off, they would get the ball, and they would hold it for a last-second desperation three-pointer. Now, what you need to understand is for this league is that they didn't let the kids play defense past the three-point line. Okay, so you can be up to the three-point line as much as you want to be and put your hands up and that kind of thing, but you can't, can't cross it. And so this other team, to hold for this last-second desperation shot, I mean, they were taking like NBA threes three feet behind, behind the line. They had this kid shooting it, and he had a, I mean, just between us, he had a terrible shot. And he never came close to making it and each time that, that he was trying. And so we were pretty confident if we could score, we'd, we'd be in good shape. And we couldn't defend it anyway, so there's not much we could do. So we, so we get into, I start to notice, notice something. One of my kids, he, he's doing the tip-off, he doesn't know that you can tip the ball forward. I said, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I rearranged them. I said, hey, you go point guard, stand over here, and I want you to tip the ball to him. He's like, I don't, I don't think I can do that. I said, yeah, you can. And so we drew up a play off the tip-off where he would get the ball, and then our point guard had a straight line to the basket because they weren't playing defense back. And Anyway, you, you get the point. We drew up a play. It took us three tries, but we finally, uh, in the third overtime, you know, after five, got it to work. And so we scored. The whole place erupts. I mean, the gym is excited for us because they wanted us to win, and everything's going great. The kids are stoked. They're excited. We've won the game because we know how this ends. We've, we've seen it for seven overtimes before this. Some of you like already know what's going to happen, don't you? So the other team gets the ball, and they come down, and they still just hold the ball. They don't even try to run a basketball play 
to try to score or tie up the game or anything like that. Same kid's just holding the ball, letting the clock wind down. Around five seconds, this kid takes, like I said, terrible-looking shot. I mean, just takes the ball and just chucks it at the basket as hard as he can. And the ball just pounds off the backboard. And, and so I'm like, yes, all right, definitely missed. And it's obvious the way that he shot the ball and the angle and the way the ball hit off the backboard. And then it hits the rim and just slams into the rim. And I said, yeah, ex exactly, like the terrible shot. It, it, it's not going on. This, this is great. And, and I know this is happening a lot faster than, than what I'm saying, but all this was happening in slow motion for me, and I'm still bitter about it. And I lost sleep. I lost sleep about it that night um, and maybe still do. Sometimes if I think about it too much. And it goes up in the air, and then it hits the rim again, and then again, and then again, 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 and the ball falls in. And then the crowd turned on us. What, what is it about that? Then everybody's like excited and great, you know, th this happened and stuff. And so, you know, this team gets rewarded for technicality and luck. We have like two seconds left, and uh, we got a great shot off, but it just kissed off the front of the rim an inch, you know, more, and we would have won the game. And it was devastating. I'm still talking about it, obviously. These kids, 8, 9, 10-year-old, I mean, you, you would have thought they lost the national championship game. They were crying. They were upset. And I'm trying to say positive things that I don't really feel in, in the moment. You know, all the things you're supposed to do as a coach, talking about how great a season we went and all that kind of, that kind of thing. It's, it's tough when we have the things that we hoped in that we were certain, thing, you know, this is how the outcome is going to be in life. I mean, it's tough when those things are undercut from us. You come to discover just how much your emotional and mental state was invested on a very specific and particular outcome that you had hoped, hoped in. And, and sometimes this kind of thing comes out of nowhere, too. You wake up one day and you realize how incredibly unfair it is that the Phillies got Bryce Harper. And not only that, but his first game back in National Stadium, he goes three for five, hits a home run, and gets a bat flip, you know, on the, on the team. And it's just like, how did we get to this point? This is just off. What world are we living in now? And you, and you realize that, that the reason those kind of circumstances exist and those events where they seem kind of random even sometimes, like, man, this is just not the way that this is supposed to happen, is really a combination of a ton of different decisions that have been made that lead up to that event. And you think about, like, how, how many decisions, you ever thought about how many decisions you make per day? There, there's some pretty random uh, guesses out there. One of the popular ones that's not true or, or you know, founded on anything is that we make 35,000 decisions per day. That sounds, that sounds crazy. That, that sounds like there's no way that we would have much time. You start you know, doing the math on that. How much time do you have uh, per day to do that? But, but let's take one thing. There is a study on this. Let's take one thing. Like how many decisions do you think you make about food per day, if, if you were to guess? Just kind of think about that internally. Because there was a study done at Cornell University by a professor of nutritional sciences. They had staff and students volunteer to be a part of, of this survey and to estimate how many decisions they make about food each day. And the average response was 15. All right, so 15 um, decisions about food. However, when the volunteers then answered specific questions about when, what, how much, and where they ate, and who made decisions about meals, snacks, and beverages, the researchers found that the staffers and students actually made an average of 221 food-related decisions each day. 
which I mean, that's kind of, I would have never guessed something that high. That sounds kind of wild. And so you wonder, you know, you ask somebody, hey, where do you want to go get something to eat? Why? Oh, man, I don't want to have to think about that. <laughs> I've already thought about food way too much, way too much, uh, you know, today. A lot of the decisions that we have, we may just kind of naturally leave on auto- autopilot, but it doesn't mean that those opportunities to choose don't lead up to making a significant impact on our life. Because there's so many decisions we have to make, I mean, we can't give an equal time amount of time to everything that we decide. I don't know if you think about it this way, but when you wake up in the morning, you don't lay there and think, all right, which eye should I open first? Should I open both at the same time or do the right one or the left one? First? You're not thinking about that, and rightfully so. Like, who cares about that? You roll the dice and, and, and let it go because how your day is going to go is not, not wrapped up in that. But how you wake up, and how you choose for your day to go, like that matters, and that leaves a significant impact on your life. And you do have the ability to choose when you wake up each morning how your day is going to go. You have some agency in that. Some days it may seem like a gamble, but all of our choices matter. And they matter based on the foundation of hope that we have in our life. Some choices cost us more than others. All are impacted by what we place our hope in. That's the foundation of how we go about deciding how we're going to do the things that we do, how we're going to react to the things that happen, happen in our life. We have a choice in that. And so that's why we're talking about hope through the lens of Jesus last week on earth before his death, burial, and resurrection. Because there are some significant events that happen that are the decisions and choices that people make that are built on a foundation of the hope that they have in Jesus. And so we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 14 today. And uh, so, so turn there in your Bible. And last week, as we talked about Jesus entering Jerusalem to the tune of thousands, praising him as king, there have been several things that have happened. Since that time, Jesus has visited Jerusalem multiple times. He's overturned tables. He's been questioned by religious leaders. He's taught parables. He's predicted the destruction of the temple and his second coming. And the result of all of this is found in Mark chapter 14, 1 through 2. Now, the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or the people may riot. It, it's, it's very obvious, it's very clear that at this point, the religious leaders of the day, their hope for what would happen with Jesus was very different from what the people were hoping would happen with Jesus. The people were hoping that Roman oppression was going to be lifted because Jesus was coming as an earthly king. The religious leaders just didn't want the apple cart to be upset because they stood to lose a, quite a bit, and they were simply not interested in considering that Jesus had come to be the promised Messiah. And there's so many decisions that have been made for these conflicting hopes for Jesus, for who Jesus should be to reach this fever pitch. The people are so excited that the religious leaders, they're afraid to move forward with their plans of assassination because they were hoping Jesus was coming to rule, which was in a particular way that was built on a misunderstanding that God's blessing is limited to what happens in the here and now. Then religious leaders have placed their hope in their own ability to control and manipulate God in such a way to make his favor contingent upon their own ability to live out their religion. And yet, as Jesus pointed out graphically on a couple of occasions, they'd actually chose 
they'd made the choice of death over life. Jesus had called them whitewashed tombs and a brood of vipers because they limited the God to what they could accomplish in the here and now. And even Jesus' disciples misunderstand what's coming for Jesus and are exposed in how shallow their hope in Jesus was rooted. And so while Mark, in, in chapter 14, he's established this context that Jesus' assassination was about to come and was being planned for, that he, he identifies two events that happen in Jesus' life that show exactly how differently people were using their hope in Jesus to affect what kind of decisions and actions took place in their life. And so uh, the first thing starts off in verse 3. And according to John and his gospel, this event actually starts a few days before, the, uh, before all of this happens, uh, two days leading up to the, the Passover. So if you would, Mark is using this as a flashback device. And so if you kind of think in your imagination, the, the kind of, you know, like they do on TV in the movie. That, that's what's happening now. And so we're back in Bethany before the triumphal entry. Verse 3, Mark 14. So while Jesus was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar, a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And they rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you always have with you, and you can help them any time you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. And truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, that what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And we know also from John that this is Mary, the sister of Martha, the sister of Lazarus, who Jesus has just raised from the dead just a few days ago. And they're in the home of Simon the leper who, I don't know if you know this, but if you're a leper, like you don't get to have a dinner party in your home for other people. And so you'd be quarantined. You were unclean. And so for Simon to be there, this meant that Jesus had healed him. And so they're having a party. They're having a dinner party in honor of Jesus. He is the one everybody is focused in, uh, in on. He is the guest of honor here. And what Mary does to honor Jesus is not normal. This is not something that typically happens at a dinner party uh, honoring someone. What she's done is she's taken this jar, it's a stone jar that's, uh, that's been carved out and filled with a very rare and expensive perfume that comes from a rooted plant in India. And, and when this is filled, this jar is sealed up, so the only way to get the contents out is, is to break the stem. And so she takes about 16 ounces of this very expensive perfume and pours it like a little bit bigger than a than soda bottle size and just pours it all over Jesus' head. It's worth a year's wages, which I know we, we think of terms of, you know, this happens uh, thousands of years ago in, in, in history, and so, that, you know, it must not really be that much in, in our context, but the median household income in the county of Henrico is 66 grand. So if, if you would, you think, now to me, 66 grand is a lot of money. I don't, I don't know if that is for you, um, but it is for me. And so you think about the significance of what Mary is doing. She's taking all of this, everything. I mean, this, this could have represented her dowry, giving her the ability to uh, have a good marriage. This could have been a family heirloom that's been passed 
down through their family's history for decades. This could have been the life savings for her, for her family. And, and she gives all of, all of this without any ability to take it back and pours it all over Jesus. And she does this amazingly, beautifully uh, poignant, symbolic gesture and gives everything of herself to Jesus in this moment. This is a big deal. And not everyone present was happy about this, including some of Jesus' disciples. There's one in particular that was indignant about this. His name is Judas, uh, but more on him in just a minute. See, at this point in his ministry, Jesus had predicted his death multiple times. And the thing that, that Mary does in this moment is that she believes Jesus. And knowing that Jesus has predicted that he's going to die, which you would think would not be the thing that you would hope in and, and that you would celebrate and that you would give everything to something or someone that was about to lose, because that's how everybody thought about it when Jesus did die. Mary's response is not that, well, Jesus must not be valuable anymore. Her response was that, well, Jesus must be worth everything. That this is the moment to give all of my hope, all of my trust, all of who I am over to Jesus, even though things don't sound like they're going to end the way that we all expected them to. When you're talking about putting up 66 grand of your own money down on something, you better believe you have some very specific hopes for what you're investing in and committing yourself to. It's a very clear indicator in Mary's life of who she's following. Her actions defy all sensibilities, but it also does something else, and this is what Mark is contrasting here. It also exposes the disciples' failure to grasp the significance of the price that Jesus was about to pay. Because here's what he writes just after this happens in verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priests to betray Jesus to them. And they were delighted to hear this and promised to give him money. So he watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Judas, one of the twelve, one of the followers closest to Jesus who had been with him throughout his ministry, that has seen the wisdom of what Jesus has taught, has seen the miracles that he has performed, and knows firsthand the authenticity of who Jesus is. His hope was still only in what he could get his hands on and what he could get from Jesus. Even as a disciple, he completely missed the point. I mean, one of the things that John points out in his gospel is that Judas is so indignant about Mary doing this because they could have sold it and given it to the poor. The reason he cared about that is because he helped himself to the money, because he was the one who held the purse strings. Later on, it's during the Passover meal, and you can read more of the details later in Mark chapter 14 as you continue. We're not going to read all of that, but you see that Jesus foretells, he, he knows that somebody is going to betray him. He knows exactly who, who it's going to do, it's, who's going to do it. It's going to be the person who dips their bread into the bowl with him, and it's Judas. And Judas completes this betrayal by leaving to do just that. So here are two very starkly contrasting responses to Jesus. Mary and Judas both obviously, obviously had found great value in following Jesus up to this point, but their responses to the imminent death of Jesus couldn't be further apart. Judas lost all hope. Mary gave all of her hope. And the reason why is that hope is an all-encompassing proposition. It's an all-or-nothing thing. You either have it or you don't. 
hope is one of those things that we need to survive. It's the thing, even if we don't recognize what it is or if we're not thoughtful about what we're putting our faith and our hope and our trust in in life, it, it is the thing, the platform through which we continue to, to live and make the decisions that, that we do. It, it's, it's something that we need in order to keep going. It's, it's the thing that gives us a reason for making the decisions that we do, pursuing the things that, that we do. And, and what's interesting about that is, is hope is the, with hope being the thing that keeps us going is that um, the, the problem that we have is that we're all broken. And so what happens with our hope is over time, depending on what it's placed in, our hope kind of filters out, it seeps through the cracks. Because we're all vessels that are broken by sin. And the major difference between Mary and Judas here and the result of their actions is this. Is that Mary takes her everything. People would have viewed this as, as like her giving up all of who she was and all of who she could be. And she takes this brokenness and she lays it all at Jesus' feet. And what Judas does is he takes all of his brokenness and his sin and he takes it with him when he leaves Jesus. Mary was committed to her hope in Jesus even when things didn't sound like they would end well. Judas cut bait as soon as he thought there was greater value for himself elsewhere. Mary placed all of her hope in Jesus. And she's rewarded with the risen Christ. And so for those of us that know the rest of the story, it's, it's a no-brainer decision. And, and for those that were in the moment and saw Mary's actions, I mean, I'm, I'm sure they thought, man, this is, what, th this is just a gamble here. You don't know what it's about, what's about to happen. Jesus can't be worth everything that you have in your life. But Mary wasn't just gambling here. She was responding to what she saw happen time and time again with Jesus' interaction with the people that were around him. And it's that God takes our brokenness and reshapes us into who we're created to be. That's the thing that she saw happen over and over again. That's why she was willing to place all of her hope in Jesus, even when it didn't seem like things were going to work out the way that she would have wanted or any of us would have wanted if we were in her shoes. See, when we hold on to our brokenness or our sin, we make use of, of just a small piece of who we are and who we were created to be, and we see everything in our lives through only that lens. And that was the problem with Judas, is that he was, he was greedy. And sure, he was Mr. Moneybags for the disciples. He must have been great. Maybe he was, a great accountant. he was a great accountant. Unfortunately, part of that was his greed, and when left unchecked in his life, he only saw his life through that lens, through a small, broken piece of himself. Satan was able to use that to motivate his life through his sin. And that's why our identity fully fulfilled in God matters. Hope in Jesus is an all-or-nothing invitation. It's about me allowing God to take all of me and remold me and reshape me into who he created me to be. And that's when I become something complete. And that's when I become something that's whole, without cracks, without the, the leak of hope in my life. In Romans chapter 15, Paul says this. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
Mary's trust in Jesus let her give, this, give him such an extravagant gift that represented everything she had to offer, which led Jesus to say, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. It's because Mary acted out of her hope for what Jesus had claimed he was going to do, even if she hadn't seen it fulfilled yet. And that's what God does with the type of hope that he gives us. When we give him all of us, all of our brokenness, all of our sin, even the good things of, of us, all of who we are over to him, and we allow him to shape us and to heal us and create us in a, in a new creation way, the, what, what God promises to do for our lives, we become the type of vessel that can overflow with the type of hope that God gives us. That's why hope continues to rise. As broken vessels who've been remolded and reshaped, we share our hope out of the overflow of what God has blessed us with and what the Holy Spirit sustains in us. But the only way this works is if we view our life, we view our world through the lens of our Savior and not through our sin. That's why we're invited to leave everything at the foot of the cross. Hope requires discipline in our lives. It requires that being reminded of who we are and whose we are and, and why we're called to live the way that we're called to live. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24 through 27, and Paul writes this. He says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Hope requires discipline because it's, it's not about what we can get out of Jesus, but it's what we can give over to him. And that was the big difference between Mary and Judas. She was concerned about what she could bring to Jesus, and Judas was only concerned about what he could get out of him. And this is the great robber of hope. And this is what our sin does to us. Because our sin tries to convince us of the lie that if we, we take part in it, that if we follow that particular path that we want to choose based on our feelings, based on our desires, or based on how we feel like we have to live because of our brokenness, we, we find very quickly that it's an, an insatiable thing that our sin is trying to draw us to. That we never feel fulfilled, we never feel filled with hope as a result of that because that's the, great, that's the great lie of sin in our life. But Mary, man, when she goes all in with her everything, with her hope, with Jesus, with this confidence that Jesus is worth everything, she is, she's rewarded with the truth that he is. And that he makes us whole, and that he takes our brokenness and he reshapes it into something that can carry the kind of hope that we need to live this life. And so I, I just... I just want to invite you, like, maybe, maybe that's not a decision that, that you've consciously considered and made in your life, the choice where you said, hey, I know that my life, the foundation that I build on my life, my life on, it, it matters. And so is that on the hope of, of Jesus? I and mean, that's the only way it's going to continue to fill your life up is if you place 
your decisions, the choices that you make, how you walk, how you talk, how you interact with people, how you react to situations in life, that, that all comes from the foundation that you place your hope in. And, and is it him? Is that something you consider? Because if, if it is or if, if it isn't, maybe, maybe it's, a, it's a time or a place in your life right now where you can make the decision to, hey, I, I need to explore that. And there's some questions I need to ask. And I would love to be the person that you ask those questions to. Maybe it's, it's a time and place in your life where you're, you're ready to say, hey, I, I need to go all in, in Jesus. I need to make that choice that I'm ready to have my sins washed away. I'm ready to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's the picture symbolically we're given when we're called to be baptized, is respond and say yes to Jesus. Or, or maybe it's just a, a place in your life that as a Christ follower, you, you realize maybe there's been some drift and, and that maybe some of the uh, you know, things that ha- have happened in our life, some of the choices that we've made have kind of betrayed the fact that we haven't rested all of our hope on Jesus for who we are and how we live our lives. I mean, let me, let me just challenge you and encourage you to, to look to him for your hope and your confidence, especially when things don't seem like they're going well. That, that is the time to even more go all in with your hope and who Jesus is because he will always fulfill and make that hope worthwhile in our lives. Let's pray as we prepare for a time of communion. God, we, um, we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit um, who sust- sustains in us the hope that we need to, to survive, to uh, live life, to face whatever we might face. God, we ask that you make that real and evident in our hearts, in our minds, and our souls as we, we trust in you, as we seek to give you all of who we are so that we can recognize how you remake and reshape us into who we're supposed to be. God, we thank you for this time of communion, this time where we get to be reminded that when we, when we place everything at the foot of the cross, you make it eternally worthwhile. We praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.